This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 38. We'll be looking tonight at the entire chapter of Genesis 38. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And when she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah, He was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. It came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. And Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, she thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. And he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. 
Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would ready our hearts to receive it, even as we see more difficult and shameful and bitter things from the history of your people. We see also your hand of providence and provision and even your hand of grace and how you are beginning to work in the hearts and to transform your people so that they might do what is pleasing to you. I pray that you would write the truth of the gospel on our hearts tonight by which we are saved and even to which this passage points us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every family history has its dark secrets. In recent years, the study of ancestry and genealogies has become quite popular and with this, the discovery of family secrets has become more common. People start digging into the past of their family. They start finding some surprising things. Sure, you might find out that you're related to some hero, some famous person, some general, some founder of an institution or a community. But then if you go look and you might also find in the family history crime degeneracy, illegitimate descendants, all kinds of gross immorality. And this is true of just about every family in this fallen and sinful world. We've already seen a lot of darkness in the early family history of God's people. But tonight, as we continue on in Genesis, we now come to a particularly sordid episode for Judah. Judah is an important figure in the family of faith. He is the fourth oldest son of Jacob by his first wife, Leah. As it stands at this point, his three older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, are already severely morally compromised. Reuben had a forbidden incestuous relationship with one of Jacob's concubines. Simeon and Levi engaged in blasphemy and slaughter at Shechem, in reaction to the defiling of their sister. 
So the eldest three sons of Jacob are compromised to the point that when Jacob blesses his sons at his death, their blessings will be more like curses. They will not receive the blessing of the firstborn. But now we come to Judah. Now we already saw last time that Judah is no paragon of virtue. He participated with his brothers in this murderous plot against Joseph. In fact, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery, which was a more humane option than murdering him or leaving him in the well to die, but it was still cruel and still sinful, still something they had no business doing to their brother. Now, most of the rest of Genesis will deal with the life and times of Joseph in Egypt and how God uses it to provide for and deliver his people. But this week, in this chapter, we get a brief interlude, a brief interjection where we look at Judah and developments in his family. And we will look at this interlude about Judah tonight in four points. First, we see degeneracy in verses 1 through 10. We're going to see great wickedness among Judah's family. And then second, we see deception in verses 11 through 19. Judah makes promises to the widow of his son, which he does not keep. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. And third, we see discovery in verses 20 through 26. Judah's evil and hypocrisy are laid bare for all to see. So then fourth, we see deliverance in verses 27 through 30. Though great evil has happened, God is working in this. So degeneracy, deception, discovery, and deliverance, these are our points for tonight. So first we see degeneracy in verses 1 through 10. We see that in verse 1, Judah comes to a point where he decides to depart from his brothers and dwell on his own. Now we don't know exactly what brought this about, We know that in his father's house, there seems to be very little care or help or future for him. It seems that Jacob is bent on giving the best of everything to Rachel's sons. And with Joseph now presumed dead, it would seem this falls to Benjamin. So the sons of Leah and the sons of the other women are basically second-class citizens in their own household. And also we've seen in the past, first with Abraham for Isaac and then with Isaac for Esau, that among the many things that Jacob cannot be troubled to do for his sons, he cannot be troubled with finding them suitable wives. So Judah takes matters into his own hands. Here we see that Judah goes and visits this Adolamite named Hira, who is a friend of his. And he decides to go live and deal among the Canaanites, rather than the people of God. While he's there, he meets an unnamed woman of the Canaanites, this daughter of Shua, and marries her. Now, if you've been here for this series through Genesis, you know that this is bad news. The children of Israel were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. They were unbelieving idolaters and pagans. Abraham knew this. This is why, although he waited longer than perhaps he should have, he did send to the land of his family to get a wife for Isaac. Isaac also realizes this and sends Jacob to procure a wife after Esau had taken two from Canaan. 
Now, this issue of intermarriage was also part of the blasphemy and sacrilege on the part of Simeon and Levi. They used the guise of religious conversion to try to form a marriage pact with the Canaanites, though it was one that they never meant to honor, and for their part, the Canaanites did not either. But Jacob hasn't done anything that we can see to get wives for his sons. We see again his passivity and disinterest in his son's lives and the family's future. So Judah strikes it out on his own and marries a Canaanite. And by her, he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, unlike his father, Judah does seem to at least take some involvement in securing wives and posterity for his house. We see that Judah takes a wife for Ur, named Tamar. Of course, the problem here, it seems, is Ur himself. We learn in verse 7 that he was evil. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We don't read specifically why or what the evil was, but it was so egregious that God put him to death for it. God struck him down. It could be that as the half-son of Canaanites being raised among the Canaanites, he engaged in some great idolatry or blasphemy. Given the moral climate of which we are about to learn more, it could have been some other kind of wickedness, we don't know. But whatever it was, it was so severe that God would not let him live. This obviously creates a problem for Tamar, for Ur's widow, because Ur dies before they have any children. Now, in the ancient world, and including in Israel, the proper remedy for such a situation was that a surviving brother of the deceased would father a child by the widow of the deceased brother, who would be considered the deceased brother's son and would inherit his share of the estate. I did mention it was practiced in Israel. It's prescribed in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, and this practice is known as Leverite marriage. Now, there was disincentive in certain ways for a brother to do this. More heirs meant less inheritance. But it was considered honorable. It was considered a duty, and failing to do it would result not only in private but public humiliation. So, for instance, in the law of Israel, a brother who did not do this duty would actually be brought to the elders of the city and the widow would be able to remove his sandal and spit in his face and publicly shame him. Now, this practice seems very strange to us. It's no longer something that happens in our world, but it was common and acceptable back then. Now, part of this was practical necessity. There needed to be a way to provide for young childless widows. And also, inheritances in Israel, although this wasn't the case in Judah's time, it would be later, they were set and fixed according to tribes, according to family lines. So the inheritance needed to stay in the family and go to the proper place. So, Onan is tasked by Judah with fathering a son by Tamar. But Onan engages in perversion and treachery. We see that in verse 9, Onan knew the heir would not be his. He was jealous for his brother's share of the inheritance. He wanted it all for himself. But there is another layer to this depravity. While he is unwilling to father an heir by Tamar, he is willing to fake it. 
and he is willing to use Tamar, it seems, for his own pleasure, but is unwilling to actually do his duty to conceive a child. We see just more gross perversion in the house of Judah. And as with Ur's unnamed sin, this act of Onan was despicable and displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord killed him also. So we are now 0 for 2 as far as Judah's sons being godly and honorable, or for that matter, staying alive. So what happens next? Well, this brings us to our second point. After degeneracy, we come to deception in verses 11 through 19. Now, there are actually two instances of deception going on in this section. The first concerns Judah. We see that in verse 11, Judah tells Tamar to wait until Shelah is old enough to father a child by her. And yet it doesn't seem that Judah is sincere in this. He wants to use Shelah's youth as an excuse, but he's actually concerned that Tamar is somehow to blame for the death of his two sons, and so he doesn't want to give the third to her as well. Now this is treacherous on multiple levels. First, it is not true. Ur and Onan died because of their own wickedness. Tamar was an innocent party in all of that. Second, as John Calvin notes, if Judah had no intention of letting Tamar have a son within the household, he could have released her. He could have let her go. Perhaps she could have married into some other family. The Leverite marriage was not an absolute obligation. Even in Deuteronomy, as it was prescribed in Israel, there was an out. It was an unpleasant and shameful out, but an out all the same. But Judah is unwilling to do either of the possible right things here. He won't let Tamar have a son by one of his sons, and he won't release her. He's deceiving her and putting her in a very bad situation. If she has no son... She has no one to care for or provide for her or secure an inheritance for her. But she believes Judah, at least for a time, and returns to her father's house to wait. We next see in verse 12 that Judah's wife, this unnamed daughter of Shua, dies. Judah is comforted, he mourns, and then his mourning is done. We then learn that Judah went with his friend, Hira the Adolamite, who we met earlier, to shear sheep. Now, as commentator Derek Kidner notes, sheep shearing was a festive time. It would be like a harvest, like Thanksgiving. It would be a celebration. It would be a party. Of course, this is not a party among the people of God. This is among the Canaanites, who were pagans. Part of the Canaanite pagan religion and its celebrations that would have distinguished it from the worship of the true God was that the Canaanite religion included gross sexual immorality as part of its worship, specifically cultic prostitution. Now, this was not unique to them, it seems, throughout history. Almost all religions that oppose God end up incorporating some sort of sexual perversion. Once one abandons the standard and source of morality, which is God himself, there's really nowhere else to go. And after some time has passed from 
the death of Onan to Judah now going up to shear his sheep, she now realizes that Judah has no intention of making good on his promises to provide an heir for her. So hearing that Judah is about to go to the sheep shearing and all the extracurricular activities that that will bring, she engages in deception of her own, taking matters into her own hands. She took off her widow's garments, some kind of modest apparel that she would wear to not get the attention of men, and instead dresses herself as one of these cult prostitutes and places herself along the way that Judah would go. Part of this is veiling herself, which also serves the purpose of Judah not being able to recognize who she is. Now, it should go without saying, but none of this is good. There's a tendency in many modern commentators to overlook what Tamar did. Well, they'll say things like, well, she was just a woman in a bad situation, making the best of it she can. Now, it's true that Judah has sinned against her and put her in a very bad situation. She is acting out of some legitimate needs, but this does not justify her acting as a cult prostitute and seducing her father-in-law. While it is not the usual motivations of such activities, and there is some mitigation because of Judah's sins that created this situation, it's still an unrighteous and immoral act. The best explanation of how to morally reason through this, as is often the case, comes from Calvin, who says, She is hurried by a blind error of mind into another crime, not less detestable than adultery. For by adultery, conjugal fidelity would have been violated. But by this incestuous intercourse, the whole dignity of nature is subverted. This ought carefully to be observed, that they who are injured should not hastily rush into unlawful remedies. So put more simply, the ends don't justify the means. Tamar had been done wrong, but she also did wrong. As we have seen so often in Genesis, the sins of God's people spin greater webs of sin and misery in their households and for those around them. But Tamar's deception does work. This shows us just how far from uprightness and pious living Judah had become. He's living like a Canaanite among the Canaanites. He's willing to hire a cult prostitute on his way to shear the sheep. Apparently had a reputation for being that sort of man because Tamar has reason to believe that such a scheme would work, and it did. But this is a thorough plot. It's not just enough to have a child by Judah. There's going to be ramifications to her actions later, and so she has to get in front of those. And that is where this business with the signet and the cord and the staff come in. These were unique items, items that a man of means would have, and they would have been identifiable. For one, the signet, it was a seal. It was basically what would be used to sign and authenticate documents. It'd be like a stamp that you use, you put on your documents, and then people would know that it came from you. So it would have been one of a kind and unmistakable. 
She deceives Judah into giving it to her as a pledge that he'll send the goat later and then she'll give it back. But she has no plans to return it. Her plan is to entrap Judah in his sin later. And we learn that Tamar conceived. She was now carrying not just one, but two of Judah's children. She goes back home and puts on her garments of widowhood. But there's going to be fallout to this. And this brings us to our third point. After degeneracy and deception, we come to discovery in verses 20 through 26. In verse 20, Judah has his friend Hira take the goat back to where Tamar had been so that he could get his cord and signet and staff back. But she's not there. Hira, realizing she's not there, starts asking around. But no one else had seen any cult prostitute around. He reports back to Judah, and Judah at this point realizes that he's in a precarious position. While cult prostitution seems to be a common activity among the Canaanites, it's not something that anyone from the people of God should have been practicing. And at this point, Judah is ashamed of his actions. He knows that this was a mistake. He knows that this is sin. Now he's also lost his signet, which poses its own set of problems. Again, remember, it was for signing documents. People could start forging things and committing fraud in his name. This would be kind of like today if you gave someone you don't know your social security number. If that falls into the wrong hands, you're in some serious trouble. Whoever has it basically has free reign over anything that's yours. But Judah is ashamed of what he's done, as I said, and so he would rather risk his signet being misused than come clean and public about his actions. He decides whoever that woman was, she can keep it. Well, three months later, it's found out that Tamar is pregnant, and this is reported to Judah. It is reported that she has been engaging in prostitution. And here we see Judah's utter hypocrisy because he participated in prostitution as a buyer just a few months prior, but wants Tamar to be put to death for it. Now, it is not that she has not sinned, even a sin worthy of death, but it is also Judah's sin. And it is all the more egregious to Judah because this was a sin that happened within his scope of authority. He could have and should have done right by Tamar in the first place so that it never came to this. But Tamar is ready. When confronted, she sends the cord and the signet and the staff to Judah, saying that the man to whom they belong is the father. And Judah realizes at this point that he has been had. He knew that those items were his and that he was the father. And he also realizes that all of this resulted in part from his own treachery. He acknowledges, she has been more righteous than I. Now, again, she has not been righteous. Let's not be confused. She committed grievous sin as well. But Judah's sin was greater because it was his sin and his abdication of responsibility to those under his care that led to all these other sins that came from it. 
Tamar sinned, but her sin was dealing with the problem that Judah caused by his superstition and negligence. Now we also see that Judah never knew her again. She lets her live, but this was not a proper or legitimate relationship, and they do not marry or have relations again, which proves this out. And yet Judah, realizing his own sin, relents from his wrath against Tamar. Now, what is all of this about? This is a pretty ugly story. It's graphic. There's a lot of unpleasant details, a lot of things that are really even difficult to speak of that are going on here. So why is this story here? Well, for one... What we are beginning to see here, though it will take a long and twisted road and already has, is Judah's repentance. While he has clearly strayed far from where a man of God ought to be, God is working in him. Like his father Jacob before, though he is severely backslidden and engaging in egregious sins, Judah belongs to the Lord and the Lord will work his good pleasure in him. And not just for him, but for future generations. And that brings us to our final point. After degeneracy, deception, and discovery, we come to deliverance in verses 27 through 30. We see that Tamar gives birth to twins. As we've often seen in Genesis, these two sons are given names pertinent to how they are born. It's actually something a little bit similar to the birth of the twins Esau and Jacob. There's something of a struggle. It seems like one is on his way out, but then the other cuts in line and is born first. These two sons are named Perez and Zerah. So Judah has two more sons, and Tamar has the safety and security of heirs in her widowhood. What does this have to do with deliverance? Turn over quickly to Matthew chapter 1. We looked at this a couple weeks ago on Christmas Eve, but we're going to look at it again. I'm going to read just a few verses from the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Well, would you look at that? From this tangled web of sin and corruption and deception emerges the line of descendants from which the Savior will one day come. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But not just from the tribe of Judah. He comes from what is seemingly the worst and the weirdest of the tribe of Judah. Not the line of Shelah, but the line of Perez by Tamar. Though we have seen all this sin, and all this corruption, God is working in it to bring about his redemptive purposes, not just for Judah, who will repent 
By the end of Genesis, we will see him as a changed man, one who has become much more a man of faith than a man of piety. But this is not just for Judah and Tamar, but redemptive purposes for the whole world. While the sins of this chapter are many and great, God's love and care and mercy for his people is greater. Because it is from this utterly disordered and sinful series of events and relations that Christ will enter the world. God saves sinners. And he saves sinners through Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, born of the tribe of Judah. God will turn disaster for his glory and his people's good and salvation. may even seem to be a bit repetitive to say it. It's the punchline of so many of these messages in Genesis. But we get told that over and over again because we need to hear it. God is in the business of saving and using and working through sinners, dirty, rotten sinners. And that's good news for us because we are all in our own ways, dirty, rotten sinners. Our sins may not be the same ones we saw in this chapter, or maybe they are. But apart from Christ, the net result of all of our sins are the same, death and condemnation and hell. But Christ came from that tribe of Judah, and he lived without sin. He kept the law perfectly and entirely through his whole life. And he suffered and died the cursed death of the cross to pay that debt that our sin incurred. And he was raised from the dead because death could not hold him. He is the Lord of life and death. And those who receive and rest on Christ as he is offered in the gospel, even those who have done some of the really bad stuff like Judah has done, those who receive and rest on Christ have eternal life and salvation. Whatever your sins, his grace is enough. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though we see many great sins of your people, we see many difficult things, we can even see in this your plan of redemption unfolding, the hope of the world that is to come in Christ, and how even those who sinned in the ways they did in this passage have their hope of salvation and redemption in Christ. I pray that if there's any here tonight who do not know Christ, who are not united to him, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would work faith in them so that they might repent and believe. I pray for those of us who are in Christ, that more and more by the Spirit, we would be sanctified. We would be kept from sin, from the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website 
hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.